Romans chapter 1. So we have covered just the intro, Paul speaking to this group of people in a remarkable way, again, connecting kind of his ministry and what God has called him to do personally to the Old Testament scriptures, to the message that really has been since the beginning, one of the main, again, criticisms of Paul was that he was speaking something other than what the Jews knew, and they're talking of a different God, a different gospel, getting rid of the whole law and everything that would relate to Judaism. And Paul, again, is just showing that he's speaking the truth and then sharing his intention to come to be with these people, hopefully to get to Spain, to break new ground with the gospel, seeking to be an encouragement to them and be encouraged himself. And then in 15, we finished up with him saying, as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And now 16 and 17, these famous verses here. Four, and we have a few fours here, all the way down to 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul here says, I'm going to preach the gospel, and he needs to throw this in, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Again, even in Paul's day, there was a shame to the gospel, particularly in Paul's day. It was a message about a Jewish Messiah who was rejected by the most religious Jews, It was a message about a king who was crucified under Roman rule. It was a message that introduced people to a way we know that was spoken of negatively throughout the world. There was, to Paul's message, a shame to the Jew and to the Greek. We'll see. There was was a part of it that rubbed against people the wrong way. Yet for Paul... It was a high honor to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach what would be ridiculed by Jews and Greeks alike. And it was part of the evidence that this gospel wasn't something just made made up by human people. If it was, then the message would have catered to pleasing men. It would have been something that everybody would have liked. It would have been something that would have fed to people's kind of basic and usually base desires. Everybody knows the advertising world. There's a lot of money there. And those people basically know how to say the best parts of something while leaving out the negative parts of what it will actually look like to use it, right? Here's this amazing vacuum, except they don't show you how horrible it is to clean once you fill it up or something. So there's always some modern method of sales technique. And particularly even in our day and age, there is, in relating to the gospel and what Paul was sharing, pressure to create a shameless gospel, a gospel that men don't have to be ashamed of because there's no repentance. They could be saved by their own means, outside of their own wicked hearts or sin. Certainly no cross no risen Lord, no heaven or hell. The cross is kind of the negative part of the message. Jesus is more symbolic of 
sacrifice and surrender. He's a great example for us, and he just loves so much, and we're supposed to kind of take that example. But there are whole segments even of the Christian world that don't, we don't really want to focus on the negative part. For Paul, the cross was the center of it all. He came to preach the message of Christ crucified, the good news of the gospel that is going to relate to a righteousness that is of or from God. And he didn't come to just bring a respectable message. Paul Paul was not showing up to the big fanfare or stadium full of people with cool rock bands. Not that all those things are terrible, but the reality is that was not what he was bringing. Yet, he wasn't ashamed of it. And I think there's a constant pressure on us to use um, the gospel or to talk about our faith or the reality and truth of God in a way that can still be respectable. Our faith can end up, somebody said, like a parachute where we got it stored away and we really hope we don't ever have to depend on it in life. When the reality is, for Paul, that was the exact opposite for him. He wanted to come and share the gospel wherever he was. It's sad, again, he has to say this as a believer. He's, he's not even totally getting to the unbelievers yet. You notice he's talking about himself as a believer, someone who has faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He has to put it out there, which is sad, because, again, even people who would claim Christ, believe in God, say they believe in God as their creator, their savior, they may admit a need for salvation or even sin in their life, yet they're ashamed to be noted as a follower of him. There's not worldly shame in being a half-Christian, one who claims to know God, but still follows the culture's language or sexual ethic or self-pleasing, self-centered lifestyle. But to be a Christian who loves God with their whole heart, mind, and strength and body and gratefully, lovingly, and reverently speaks of their Savior who saved them from their sin kind of a shameful person in the world. People don't really want to hear those types of things. And it's sad what Satan has accomplished, that I think there are a lot of people who would say they'd believe in Jesus Christ, yet they'd rather be considered a worldly sinner and associated with such instead of being known as a born-again saved son or daughter of God because of the good news, the gospel. And it was the same in Paul's day. It's not, America's not unique. Paul was not preaching what he was preaching because it was acceptable to the culture or because it seemed like it was inclusive to everybody or because it seemed like it was a great thing for them to hear and wouldn't offend anybody. The, the inference in him saying he's not ashamed is he knows that this is going to offend people, part of this message. 
to the Jew first, then to the Greek, was the reality of the divine order. Again, 1 Corinthians 1 says this, verses 22 through 25, the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul was never going to surrender on the message. He was not ashamed of the message. Because for him, notice, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It was that for him personally. He was radically changed through the power of God. He preached it because it was divinely true and divinely empowered. And he had experienced that himself personally, and he experienced it publicly, that he had gone into different cultures, shared the same message, and seen that message change hearts and lives. And for any of us who have experienced that personally, it should be the driving force for us to still go and share with others. There's always something else that will push against us, whether it is that pressure to uh, be associated with those Christ followers, right? That's becoming a more negative and negative circle in our day and age. Whether it's the pressure of maybe not feel like you don't know everything. What if they ask me a question? I don't know how to answer it. You know, what if, what if I start selling, telling somebody about Jesus and then I tell them, oh, they have to believe in Buddha too and I mess it up and they go to hell. You're not going to do that. There's always some kind of pressure on us to not make a mistake, but the reality is this. The pressure really isn't on us. This is where the power is, in the message, not in the symbol. It's not even just the cross. We do have people wandering here, and they're like, where are the cross? How come you guys don't have any crosses around? Like like we're somehow lacking power because we don't have this symbol. The power is not in the symbol. The power is in the message, the truth of the gospel. And you and I, when we share the gospel, the simplest, uh, most artless attempts to share the simple truth that Jesus loves a lost world and he came and paid the price to die for their sins so that they can be saved. That simple truth has its own power in hearts and lives. There are secret allies in the hearts of those who are lost. And the Holy Spirit works that truth. And he's the one who saves people. It's not you and I. We just share the message. But he takes the message and he works it on a human heart. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Because I I know that if I go and I share this, it is the power of God to salvation. People will be saved. God is going to do the work. He had known that personally. He had seen it personally, and he was unashamed of it. And what was divinely special about it is this good news. He says in 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God, the good news, is that God is righteous to save apart from all human work. He, God could be righteous to deal with humanity like he did in the flood. God could deal with all sin. He could just kill everybody. 
He could just judge sin immediately. He could be righteous to judge sin like that, but he has chosen not to. He's chosen to give good news that the righteousness of God is revealed, that a human being can find that personally in him. The question is, how does God bring people who are unrighteous, people who are in the wrong, into a place of righteousness, being in the right, and still be a just judge himself? And Paul's working his way there. He's going to get there. But he says, there's a way for God to do that. Take people who are in the wrong and put them in the right. He's accomplished something that that can happen. And the answer is, of course, faith in the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is based on faith. It's addressed to faith. We receive the righteousness of faith, not of works. Another's righteousness completed on purpose to save us and redeem us and make us new. They used to have, back in the day in some countries, a, a kind of uh, tradition where people who were dying would pay for what they esteemed to be a holy monk's uh, cloak so that they could be buried in it. So a Franciscan order, an Augustine order, you would pay for this cloak and you would cover yourself in it and it would be the holy monk who had this cloak on, their righteousness was kind of on you. And it was a poor attempt at what Christ has actually provided for us. A righteousness not our own. In fact, God's righteousness. And it was a humiliating truth for the Jew to have to admit that God's circumcised people needed a righteousness outside of them and their own, what they could do to be saved. That there was a righteousness that was provided for as a lamb, and they needed to trust in that, like the Gentiles did. We were in John, and when they were talking to Jesus about works, John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. They wanted to do something. How can we be saved? What if we do this? What if we do this? And here, the idea of having to trust, to put faith in the work of another to save me, a work to be believed in and not done or accomplished because somebody else has already accomplished it. And that was hard. That was a hard pill to swallow. It's actually still a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people today who think that they're basically a good person. Like, I, I, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm all right. I mean, look at these other people, how messed up they are. But you, you're never going to get an argument that there's not messed up people in the world. We all know that. But the problem is, to go to heaven, I need the righteousness of God. I'm not comparing myself to other human beings. I'm comparing myself to Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what type of civil neighbor you have been. You don't measure up to Jesus Christ. And if you don't measure up to Jesus Christ, you don't measure up to the standard. You need a righteousness from God. And to try to work that in yourself, to, to find that in you, you either turn into a legalist or you become depressed because you realize, I'm broken. 
There is something messed up inside of me that cannot enact goodness continually. Martin Luther, of course, came to this scripture. And for him, religion was a burden. He would flog himself. He, it was just something that weighed on him. He was trying to be perfect. And he just found sin in him constantly as he looked at himself and tried to be righteous. But he said, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God, that phrase, had filled me with hate because he couldn't reach it, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. He realized there's somebody else's righteousness there for me. I can't do this on my own. And to have that extended to him is where he became free. And the same is true of Paul. Paul said in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, listen to this, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. If you're here tonight and you think you're going to work your way to heaven, you're severely mistaken. But if you know you're a sinner, we have a Savior. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this. It is good news to any sinner or person who's trying to work their own righteousness and realizes in truth they can't do it, like Martin Luther, that there is, for everyone who believes, a righteousness of God revealed. There's something provided for us from faith to faith, from first to last, from Jew to Gentile. He says, as it is written, Habakkuk 2.4, this is a quote. To show this, again, wasn't something he was making up. This wasn't some new message. This was something the scriptures had always pointed to. The just shall live by faith. That if it's faith, it's not my own work. I'm trusting in something else. I'm putting my faith in something else, in someone else, in another work. And the wonderful news was not just that as a Jew, a lamb could be provided to cover my sin. The good news now was that God's righteousness has been fully revealed in the Lamb of God, which has already been given on your behalf. And all you need to do is believe. You don't have to work for it. And this is the power of God to salvation. This message that's out there from God himself for all of humanity. And Paul said, not ashamed of it. It's what I looked for. All those other things, his whole Jewish heritage in Philippians 3, those things I count as rubbish. I am no longer trying to be found in my own righteousness, but found in him. In a righteousness that's not from the law, but from Jesus Christ through faith. That's where we've all come, the same path. It's what he was going to go there and share and preach. And 
as he moves on here, what he is going to do in 18, really through 3.23, when he finally just puts the whole world under sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he is going to basically show that everybody needs this message. So from 118 down through 3 there, he is going to show that whether you are a pagan, carnal, wicked sinner, that's obvious to everybody in the rest of this chapter, or in the beginning of chapter 2, whether you're kind of that civil, moral, good person who doesn't look quite as bad on the outside, but you're still just as much a secret sinner and wicked on the inside, or whether you're the religious Jew who had God's word and felt like you were better than everybody else in the world because you knew what the truth is, but you were still a sinner too because you couldn't live up to it. Everybody falls short. Wherever you are, kind of on the spectrum, Christ is the answer. And God has brought forward and revealed that in his son. So we'll move down here, verse 18, 4. Again, why he's not afraid to preach the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He, he is going to show that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. God's wrath is upon sin. It is revealed from heaven, therefore it is unashamed of it. Heaven is not going to be ashamed of God's judgment. It has been revealed both In history and in his word, certainly in the flood, in Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment throughout history, we see. But we also see it promised of Jesus Christ that there is going to come a day where he is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. Today is the day of his mercy. Tragically, human beings, even while they're surrounded by God's beauty, God's mercy, God's patience, as a message of long-suffering and forgiveness is extended, they still rebel and refuse that message, as we're going to see here. They still live in their, he says, ungodliness, which is direct disregard for God, and their unrighteousness, which is wicked conduct towards men. Therefore, God's wrath, not out of control, but steady and measured. We get angry and we lose it. I ordered 12 Chick-fil-A nuggets and I only got 10. Somebody's going to get it, right? We have, we lose it about dumb things. God never loses it. His wrath is measured. It is perfect. It is real, but it will come in its time. And God's wrath is revealed against these things and against those who the scripture there says in 18, suppress the truth. It's actually the same word used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 of the restrainer. Those who restrain, they hold against the truth in unrighteousness. This force here that we see of people not wanting to accept the truth of God. And his message because of sin. And he's going to now move through and kind of describe that and what that battle looks like. So verse 20, or excuse me, 19, he says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made 
even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul here is now saying, here's why they're resisting. Because the truth of God has been revealed to them. It's in their conscience and it's in creation. And they resist that truth. Particularly God's, if you notice in verse 20, it says, his Godhead, that's a unique word. Paul only uses it here. It's only here in the scripture. And it's speaking particularly about his divinity, that he is not creation. He is creator. He is something more. It doesn't, he's not saying that if human beings look at creation, they can know everything they need to know about Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's not what Paul is saying. Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to see things in clarity, you look at Jesus Christ. But what he is saying is this. By contemplating the works of God in creation, a human being can grasp enough of God's divine nature to prevent him from devolving into the era of idolatry, which is worshiping the creation over the creator. That's why God rejecting man is without excuse, because the world you live in should tell you enough that there is a power that is beyond me in the creation that I see, a wisdom that is beyond me in the creation that I see that is not that creation. It's not any of the human beings around me. It's not the grass that I walk on. It's not the sun that I look at. There is something beyond all these things. There is a divine power. God is real. And what man does instead is they just turn to everything else. Yeah, but God's invisible. You notice what he says here, that even his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That invisible realities can be known by what we see. This is, this is pretty elementary, actually. We all use our TVs. We all use radio. People believe in the internet, most of them, I think, right? Electricity, lasers, germs. There's a whole bunch of things out there that we don't see that are real. Uh, large portions of science have been developed because people see reactions out there in the world and they know there's something there they have to figure out what it is though what is making this happen i know there's something there just based off of the information i see even though i can't see that thing what is invisible can still be clearly seen so human beings too can perceive that created things are not the creator that god is real and present. Uh, if you happen to be here and you're a skeptic, I'd encourage you to read G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. He himself was a skeptic. There's particularly, it, believers can read it too. It's a great book, but he writes it as a skeptic. And he says, as I began to think out these thoughts, I, re I realized how, how contradictory so many of them were. And particularly, one of his chapters is called The Ethics of Elfland. It's not a super easy read. Um, but in it, he begins to talk about how he looked at creation. And he said, I realized creation could tell me 
how things work, but it couldn't tell me why things work. It could tell me how grass grows green, but it couldn't tell me why the grass was green. It could tell me how the sky looks blue to the human eye, but it couldn't tell me why. Why does food, we could, we could eat food and just survive and it could have no taste, but why does it taste good? Why are blue and green, which are two of the colors that are easiest on the human eye, the two colors that cover the world we live in the most? Why, he said, it began to become a conspiracy. As he looked around and realized, wait a second, why? Why in the world that I live in is it like this? One elephant trunk could be weird, but a hundred is definitely conspiracy. There's, there's something unique going on here. What Paul says in the book of Acts is this, Acts 17, 26 through 28. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have their being. Paul tells us something really important there. What he says is this. God put every human being in the place they're in, in the century they're in, in the body they're in, in the life they're in, because for some reason, that is the best place for you as an individual to find your way toward him. That's why you are where you are. Can't tell you all the other details. But he says that is the best way for you. He's appointed your times and boundaries and seasons of all men in every nation it is the best way for you to find your way towards him. The world is telling us something. And apparently, God doesn't believe that information and invisibility are the problem. God says the deck, the deck is stacked for us. He has designed it, the very world we live in, the century, the place, and the life that we walk in has been designed because it's the easiest place for you to find your way toward him. You're in the best possible position to find God and his salvation. The only question is this. Will you resist the truth? Because he says right here in the book of Romans that they are without excuse at the end of verse 20. You can have excuses before human beings, but no excuses matter when you stand before the one that you're accountable to. And before God... Human beings are without excuse, and they resist him. They suppress that truth, what the whole world could tell them. They want to free themselves from that. So Paul says, verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And the birds and the four-footed animals and the creeping things. Resisting God's truth, the truth of him, he says, yet unable to free themselves from conscience and thought, tending back to God. The minute you begin to think of life realistically... And the world you live in realistically, it always tends back to God. So what do you have to do? Well, we have to shade God. We have to get in the darkness. We have to change his incorruptible reality into something else. 
So human beings leave themselves to live in selfish ingratitude, unthankful, and as their own unaccountable gods, unholy, and in idolatry, changing what should be God to something less. Idolatry, A.W. Tozer says, is worshiping God as something that he is not. And just because we live in a more modern world, sometimes we can think idolatry is for you know, a less modern world, people building little statues and bowing down to them and things. Idolatry is thinking thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. He's not a golden calf, so you can't worship him like that. He's not the creation. That's why he said, don't make an image of me. That's not who he is. It, idolatry can happen in our hearts, in our minds. God's glory is incorruptible. He can't change for better or for worse, or he wouldn't be God. And what we see here is this huge contrast between claims and reality, that this man claims to know God or be free or be able to live life the way that he wants. And it isn't that God can't find, or man can't find information about God, but he suppresses the truth. He's without excuse. He doesn't glorify God. He doesn't give thanks. He professes to be wise, but is really futile and foolish and darkened in heart. And human beings want to walk around and give all types of excuses. It's not that we can't face difficult things here in the world. And certainly there are hard things to answer in Christianity in and of itself. But I will say this, just because there are hard things to answer in what would be a biblical worldview doesn't mean there's better answers somewhere else. And that's where people begin to lie to themselves. When you deconstruct the truth, which is a big thing nowadays, what are you left with? If you don't have God's truth, all you're left with is a lie. There's not another choice. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They become futile in their own thoughts, professing to be wise, really wise to question things. But they become fools because they've left the central thing. And what we see not only in our culture, but in cultures in Paul's day, what we see cultures totally falling apart that are godless, Rome totally corrupting from the inside. Even in our culture, the foolishness of just what could be uh, normal things, right? People used to lean on science. Science can tell us that there's a creator. The creation didn't just get here by happenstance. Science can tell us that a baby's alive in the womb. Science can tell us there's a difference between men and women. But our culture, the, the people in the highest levels of education, can't give us a clear definition of what a woman is, but we can also teach kindergartners gender identity. Or we can be free to just sexually fulfill ourselves, even heterosexually, and it won't hurt anybody. But you see what the cost of our promiscuous lifestyle in America is costing us 24-7 in terms of sexual abuse, sex trade, rape, the dark things that are all over the Internet. Alcohol doesn't hurt people. Drugs don't hurt people. The foolishness that we see 
in society, when you leave God out of it, where people profess to be wise, they become fools. Because man takes everything that's rightfully God's, and God has designed this world to be a blessing in him and through him. But when humanity leaves God out and takes what's God's and twists it, knowingly, rebelliously, and foolishly gives it to something else other than God, things begin to collapse. And that's what Paul is saying here in the world that he lives in, and it's still true in the world that we live in. And it's a picture of man outside of him. So, he says as he goes on, Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up, and he will repeat this three times, 24, 26, and 28, gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, or gave them up, sorry, 24, to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of women burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And then again in 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a debased mind. So we'll see here, The rebellion against truth leads to this place where God then says, part of his wrath worked out in the world. Okay, have it your way. You could be given over to the inevitable alienation and ruin and pain and destruction and death of life outside of me. And these are, somebody said, the birth pangs of eternal death. The beginnings. And sadly, this was seen in God's own people. Acts 7, 41, 43, Stephen say, And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. His own people. After passing through the Red Sea, immediately turned to idolatry. And what happens when we reject God and reject our creator is we reject all his works in us and through us, and we only live for ourselves. And sadly, there's no end to that. Notice in 24 again, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. It's not just the lusts of their bodies. because The body can be satisfied at some point. It's the lusts of their hearts. The heart's never satisfied. And what we see, again, in our society are the effects of that, given over to the lusts of their hearts, the activity that we see out there, particularly on a sexual level. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they begin to worship something else. People worship sex. They worship it in our society. They give their thoughts, their minds, their hearts, literally the purpose of their lives to it. And all that activity in all its different forms 
It doesn't honor the Lord. Really, it's pretty simple. We don't have to be ashamed of God's commands. If people did what God asks, if every man and every woman remained a virgin until they were married, and then married and remained faithful for the rest of that marriage, I think life in America would be better. No, no little boy or girl would ever have to be worried about sexual abuse. There would never be another rape. There would never be another act of adultery. There would never, right? Like, people act like this is crazy, but it's not, it's not that complicated. It's, it's actually foolish to say, no, life is better the other way. In America, we have the freedom legally to do what we want morally for the most part. But that comes with a cost. You can then morally turn yourself into a monster. And in God's view, when he is involved in the process, when we do things his way, there's actually blessing. And when we take God and we move him out of the design, then what we find is people worshiping themselves. And, and all different types of lies to tell us that it's okay and better. And it's not foolish. It's, in fact, wise. But God gives them up to vile passions. For, again, 26, their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. We see here what happens Heterosexual sin outside of marriage, again, still a sin. Yes, it would be better. And homosexual sin outside of marriage. But he, Paul brings this up because the homosexual sin is a greater rebellion against the work of God because it is obvious in how God has created men and women how they are supposed to be given to one another. And when we choose to reject him, not only his moral and his existence— but we also reject what he made obvious in creation. And it's not just in our society. Our society acts like it's brand new. But it was the same thing in Paul's day. He was addressing these things in Rome. He tells the Corinthian church, some of you, that's what you were. You were homosexuals. And he washed you and cleansed you, changed you. But it's one thing to sin in a way that God has naturally created, there's another step to say, now it's totally fine to also ignore what he has made in men and women, to go against God's design there. Again, in, in simplicity, because some people, they could, well, what if a man and a man remain faithful to each other in a relationship? Well, if every man took another man and remained faithful for all their life, and every woman took another woman and remained faithful for all their life, humanity would be gone in a generation. It's not, it's not a trick. It's just a reality. And we're ignoring what God has created and done because of lies. And the lies are out there. And they are active. And I would particularly encourage you, if you have a youth that's on a phone all day, they're being hunted and proselytized. You should realize that. Because... That message is only one message in the world. 
the affirmative. And when kids don't get answers that they're looking for, or they don't feel comfortable, they're all just on the internet, they're going to look one way or another. And we as Christians have to be able to speak about these things in a way that is both true and loving. But God says this is an evidence of what happens when people are given over to their vile passions. Their passions push past what should be the obvious. Again, in the Old Testament, these things are addressed. Leviticus 18, uh, voyeurism, looking upon other people's nakedness, adultery, heterosexual sin, homosexuality, incest. All these same type of sexual sins were addressed. And God has to tell his people, this is what all the nations around you are doing and the nations that you're entering into. In the book of Deuteronomy 22.5, he says this, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. It's not new. It was the same in those cultures. Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, they did it. Rome, it was happening there. Corinth, it was happening there. Paul's day, it was happening all over. Our day, it's happening all over. God's truth hasn't changed. And I don't need to go into the details, but you notice he says, they do what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty, the error, which was due. But the effects of promiscuous lifestyles, they're, they're easy to find for anybody who looks into them. Higher rates of sexually transmitted infections, mental illness, suicide, cancers, you could just go through the list. And it's the enemy because he hates human beings too. And he hates anybody that he can uh, influence. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So we see all those rates higher in trans and LGBTQ communities. And the world's only message is it's because of bigotry. It's because people won't affirm them. But the reality is those things are there either way. And Satan wants to see people committing suicide, hurting, broken. But when humanity refuses to put God in his correct place, there's nowhere else to go. You've exchanged the truth for a lie. And what's the end of it? Where, where do those people go when they regret then what they've done? There's a gospel, oh, but Satan's worked pretty hard to keep them away from that. Anybody that will tell you the truth, they're going to make your life worse. And it's not only in this godless world that this battle's being fought. There are large segments of the church right now that are fighting along these same lines. Uh, this is a quote from, an, there's a big Anglican church conference recently. And there's a whole battle in the Anglican church where some of the more conservative movement is saying, no, we cannot ordain gay and lesbian bishops. We cannot give our blessing to this lifestyle because God doesn't. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against these things. And one of the leaders talking about the group that's more progressive and accepting said this, they have not arrived lightly at their ideas 
that traditional teaching needs to change. They are not careless about Scripture. They do not reject Christ. But they've come to a different view on sexuality after long prayer, deep study, and reflection on understandings of human nature. For them, to question this different teaching is unthinkable, and in many countries is making the church a victim of derision. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Contempt and even attack. For these churches do not change traditional teaching, or for these churches not to change traditional teaching challenges their very existence. I think it's interesting that he admits that because when Paul was saying these things to challenge these things and change them he would give his blood before change them for many believers to hold traditional teaching means I give my life before I change them not just our church congregation dies out and I think it's important for us to recognize that why, why is this so important? Because it's a matter of eternal life and death. It's not a side issue. Either what God and Paul are saying here on this issue are true or they're not. Either this is an evidence of a heart separated from God or it's not. And that's why it's not, it's not just it's the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, PCA, PCA, USA split over this, the Reformed Church of America splitting over it, the Mennonite Church split over it. The, the UMC is splitting over it. The, uh, there's some great people around. And when you see these things, you should pray for our brothers and sisters. There's some great folks in the Anglican Church. We have a couple right in the area here that we've worked with, guys who believe in the Word and are faithful in the Mennonite Church, in the Methodist Church. There are true brothers and sisters in these places that are holding the ground and we should pray for Calvary Chapel. We've been insulated somewhat, thank God, from those things. Uh, I think our view of the word and our expositional teaching has kept us in a good place. But these things are being challenged everywhere. And the problem is, again, you cannot give up the truth without accepting a lie. And what's happening here is we don't need a better understanding of human nature because I don't need to understand anything about human nature. God tells me what human nature is like. And this is what he says human nature is like apart from him, given over to these types of things. And this is the nature of man apart from God. And I think this is important. None of us are beyond it. If we weren't saved, this is what we would be. We would be no different. We would be what the sinful version of our day and age is. We'd be given over to those same things. It's the power of God that has been our salvation. And I do think it's important, again, these things are true, and somebody has to say these things. And God cares about people, and he is patient with people. But God does not consider people and ideas the same. People will say we're unloving for our doctrine. We should never be unloving in our actions. They might not like my message, but they shouldn't have anything to say about our lives. 
But the world, it's the message that's the problem, right? Jesus was crucified for his message. It wasn't what he did. People act like if you were just like Jesus, people would be happy with you. No, they didn't like his message, his truth, what he was saying. And in our world, we have to say this. We can't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If a, if a person that's transgender walks in this place or homosexual walks in this place, that, you know, we're stereotyped, too, from the outside. Everybody thinks the, in their world, they're just being told, if you walk in that church, they will hate you. Right? And that's Satan, because he wants to keep them away from the only place where they can hear the truth. But the reality is, if they walked here, they should find people who care about them and want them to know the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't have to give our credence to the lifestyle. I don't, I don't have to look at all ideas of life as equal. Your life has equal value, but your idea of life does not. That's what God is saying here. There's a truth. And you and I have truth. And we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And Paul, in his day and age, was willing to say these things. Because people needed to know where they could turn. The power of the gospel is not found in derision and contempt. Right? We should never be among those making fun of trans or gay people or those types of people who are attacking them on that level. We should be the people, though, who can clearly speak the truth in love. That God didn't create you like this. That's a lie, too. We'll get there later in Romans. And it's an evidence of a sinful and broken heart, just like heterosexual sin is, or thievery. And you need to see through the lie and be saved. And Paul says that Verse 28, as he goes on, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled, that idea filled there, uh, the word there, it means to be saturated, or it could be full to the brim. And what he's doing here is he's just giving a fitting list of Mankind saturated with sin. Paul does this a couple times. He'll go through kind of just humanity outside of God and list out kind of a list of what life is like there. But man is given over to live a way that is totally opposite of what pleases God. And in the end, what benefits man? To a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Again, particularly towards other human beings. Sexual immorality, we've talked about that some. Wickedness, covetousness. Have you ever lived in a more covetous day and age? You can see more things to covet probably in one day in our lifetime than most people ever have been able to in their lifetimes. You know, if I'm in the Middle Ages, maybe a merchant comes by and shows me some cool things or something, or I can walk by the castle that's a little bit down the way, but one day watching the HDTV can probably make you more covetous than that guy could have been in a lifetime. So covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy and murder, strife, 
deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. And 31 in the Greek, each of these words starts with an A, which means not, so it comes out a little bit in our English. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So again, there's this picture here of this kind of saturated life with sin. So wherever you are, whether it's your motives, whether it's your actions, whether it's your words, the, whether it's your thought, whether it's your inner desires, that envy and covetousness, it's just constantly filled with sin outside of God. And again, this is where we were. Now, maybe we were all saturated a little bit differently. You're like, well, I was never really disobedient to my parent. Yeah, but you were a gossip. Or, you know, I was never really into this thing. Yeah, but you were violent. So maybe we're all, we're all a little bit of a different tea bag there in terms of sin. Your sin nature might have looked a little different than my sin nature, but the whole point is you were saturated in sin nature. You could not escape this. You couldn't just stop. Stop being covetous. That's what Paul says. You realize that last commandment, thou shalt not covet. How can I stop that? That's what got me. It was, I thought I could not steal. But then he realized, no, it goes down to the heart. And how can I change my nature? That's what, we're not just sinners because of the things we do. We're sinners because of what we are. And our sin nature may look a little bit different. But we can't change it outside of him. We have no power to unsaturate ourselves from the sin that affects us. That power is only in God. That's why it's a great salvation. And he says, he ends here in 32, saying, who knowing the judgment of God, knowing sin, knowing that God is going to judge. I think a lot of people still know, yeah, I know this thing was wrong. They were doing it. They've been given over to it. Again, Satan's no fool. He, he sucks people into a little bit of sin. Right? We don't want a ton of sin. We just want a little bit of sin. I just want a little bit of attention. I just want a little bit more money. I just want a little. And people start that way. But then what he does is he reels them in. And you end up getting more than you wanted. A life mastered by something. And he who sins becomes a slave to sin. And Paul says, even that person, they know it's wrong. They know the judgment of God. They know that God is going to have to judge this thing. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, yet despite that knowledge, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So this whole picture of man outside of God ends here with a picture of just happy, glad, evil united. Right? We're all we're enjoying our wickedness and our sin apart from God, outside of God. I've convinced myself he doesn't exist. I can exist outside of him and do what I want. And I'm not only happy in what I'm doing, ignoring my guilty conscience, but I'm rejoicing in those who do the same. I'm 
I'm enjoying my evil and applauding and encouraging others to follow. It's the world we live in. It's kind of a, a small version of what happens at the end. Right? The whole world sinning, gathered against God, literally ready to fight against Jesus Christ in his second coming. And evil united in their sin and evil. And this is why the wrath of God abides upon men. Because when the day comes where Jesus Christ forces every knee to bow and forces every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the tongues that didn't want to confess and the knees that didn't want to bow, they don't get broken, they get angry. And the wrath of God abides upon sin. And God puts this picture here so that we can look at it and say, is this true of the world that we live in? Is it fake? Again, do Christians have difficulty answering certain things in the world? Sure. But does the world have a better answer for these things? How, how do they solve these issues? We have jails. Jails aren't better for the people in jail. They're better for the people outside of jail. And they don't help. We keep that person in there because we can't change their heart. They want to murder people, and they rejoice in it. And we can't, society cannot stop them, so literally we just have to lock them up. Because we have no answer. Because society can't give people a new heart or new nature. It can't give them salvation. But there is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And we don't earn it on our own. And any human being that finds themselves as a sinner, if you're here tonight and you know the wrath of God abides on you, you deserve judgment for your sin and you have no way to change yourself, then can I extend to you the message of salvation, that you can have the righteousness of God through faith. Jesus Christ took your sin, the sin of the world. He loves you, and he died for you so that he could wash you and make you clean and give you a new heart and a new life and a new nature. And he's the only one who can. But man outside of God finds himself here enslaved to sin. In this pagan world, it became obvious through that lifestyle who was saturated in it. So let's do this. Let's stand. I would also encourage you, you know, I think we all have probably certain people in our lives that we can think, man, that's the last person I would expect to be saved. You know, I'd encourage you to pray for those people and have faith in the power of God to save them, not yourself, not anybody else, something supernatural. Uh, and be praying that the Lord will work in their heart, in their life. But again, if you're here tonight, you want to be saved. You want to accept God's offer of forgiveness. Come talk with us afterwards. 
He loves you. He'll wash you, cleanse you. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the truth that's there. I pray you would help us to be bold and wise to speak your word, the truth of it in love in the world around us that's lost. Lord, we needed somebody to do that for us. And the world around us needs it as well. I pray you would help us to be like Paul, to be unashamed of your gospel. And Lord, we thank you for coming and dying for us, saving us, putting us where you put us so that we could find our way toward you, even though you're not far from any one of us. And Lord Jesus, we do pray for those that we know, those that we love, Lord, that are lost caught up in the lies of this world, having exchanged your truth for a lie. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would break through, that the glorious light of the gospel of Christ would shine in their hearts and in their minds, and that they be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.